Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on this show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they and you could found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about the science, specific science-related topics such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today we are joined with Thomas, founder of Betabugs. The purpose of Betabugs, develop insects who feed next generation crops that will be more sustainable to the bioeconomy, producing such things as feed, fuel. Their current focus is on black soldier fly. In this episode, we get into the foundation of the company, his startup journey, what Betabugs does, how they think about evolution and creating the right type of organism, how he had to transition from one founding to a different one, where like one member of the founding team kind of wanted to go away and how he handled that, which I think is really interesting in the startup world, is that sometimes you build a team and, and it, it doesn't work for one reason or another. And I, th- I find that that's not really as talked about. So we get into that as well. We talk about his fears, his interests, biking, mountain climbing. I mean, we really get into a lot, so you're going to have a lot of fun listening to this. If you like insects, uh, evolutionary type stuff, like trying to develop things to a better way, then you're probably going to enjoy this episode. So let's get into this. Who all is a part of your team? Are you like a one-man operation? I know you're a part of uh deep science ventures or you were a part of deep science but i'm, I'm always curious like who who else who's all a part of making your your vision a reality yeah so we've got it's me and then it's george i've got the third got bernard joining on in june as well so it's kind of a joint effort i'd say i had i had a co-founder myrig actually and he we parted the ways way back now like well it feels way back i was in december January, more like January, and this was mainly a case of he wanted to go back to the city to work, work in that, so it was kind of, and he had a child on the way as well, so it's, it's a very different expectation in the startup world as well, so I think he, he felt he couldn't make the commitment, and he was very fair about it, and he, he was open, and we, we worked it out, so that was good, and George was on there at that time as well, so George was stuck through this and worked on everything, and now we've got Bernard joining in June to take it up a level. So, so that's how it is. I think we've all got our different roles. And that's a good thing because it means you don't overlap too much and you can kind of trust on each person to do their thing. And then we come together to see where the direction is again. And then we, we run in that direction through different areas. So George is building stuff out at the moment. I'm kind of putting the logistics together for a move. And Bernard will be joining and he'll be doing most of the lab work as well. I'll get stuck in the lab as well probably at some point. Um, so do do you guys have like roles defined or you, you just kind of as it sits? You know, like, is there like a CTO, CSO? I think you're the CEO. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like we've got directors. So I'm the director, then George is director of husbandry, and then Bernard's going to be director of evolution, which I really like the title of. It's, it's such a good title. But he's directing evolution as well. So it's, it's a, yeah, so it's kind of differentiated, but I think the idea really is everyone gets stuck in and... Uh, when it comes to a crunch, people will, yeah, people will chip in however they can into things. So I, I kind of do a bit more of a grant writing maybe at times, and then George chips in as well. George is really good at doing figures and graphics, so he's building out like the doc, uh, docs as well for like showing to people and pitching this kind of thing. But it's it's a joint effort, I'd say. That's good. That's the whole point of having a good team, especially in the early stages of having that like good connectivity is always important. What what your you to bugs like why? Why did you want to make better bugs? <laughs> better bugs. Okay. Yeah, yeah, beta bugs, better bugs. Yeah, it's it's that's a really funny one actually. So I was doing a PhD in chemistry at the University of Bristol, 
And it, it was nothing to do with this, actually. It was making films out of proteins. Uh, like, not films and videos, like tin films, tin materials. And what happened really was, I was walking around chemistry, and I pick up one of these, like, student magazines, you know, like the ones published by students. And someone had written an article about, why not eat insects? And I read it, and it made a lot of sense. I was like, oh yeah, so you've got this need for new protein sources. Insects can be fed on food waste or other waste streams. And insects are eaten around the world, actually, or at least in of Asia, Africa, there's already 2 billion people eating insects. Why not in Europe? And it kind of just started a thought process. And that was probably a bit back. And then it kind of just turned into doing desk research about it. And then reaching out to the local insect community of sorts, in a way. And then that kind of led to when it came to joining Deep Science Ventures. And Dom asked me, but you, you spoke to Dom, but Dom on the, speaking to Dom on the telephone, he's like, oh, what are you really interested in? I said, uh, insect farming. And it's like, yeah, so spend two weeks really sprinting on that and look into it a lot. And it kind of really grew on me. And it's a, it's a very exciting space as well. So I, and I felt like it's something coming in and it's good to be at that edge. And this was an edge to be able to join in because sometimes you join in too late or you can join in too early. And this just felt like ripe. So it was really good. So I was like, yeah, this is a, this is the thing to do. And. I sprinted on that, and then I, I literally was the guy who went into deep science venture saying, insect farming, insect farming, and kind of like tried different things in there on that space. Uh, so yeah, that's how it happened. I, I think it might have helped like a few years before my PhD. I was in Belgium, and there was a guy just cooking crickets. I tried them. I probably, yeah, I forgot about that by then, but it's, it's kind of like in the back of my head, you know, I've got like very crunchy, nutty taste. I'm just thinking, this makes so much sense. Then it was kind of to build it out. It was go through the DSV process, so building out a company, testing different things. And we, when you look at the industry at the same time, it kind of comes across as there's a lot of farming going on and everyone wants to try different things, uh, but for farming. And the models, the models are similar in a way. Everyone will process food waste with say black soldier fly to turn it into a fertilizer, a material, a biomaterial source, a chitin a protein source and the lipid source. But what really came up from that is there's two things. Automation, so people are really working on the automation so they can cut out all the labor. And the other one really is, and the one we don't see much of, is the breeding side. So when will people start making better insects for this industry? An insect which lays more eggs, an insect which grows faster. So this kind of comes to the kind of idea of we've done it with cows, we've done it with chickens, we've done it with salmon. We've even done it with shrimp, and shrimp's done really well, actually, because shrimp's a recently domesticated species and optimized species, and it managed to trip, nearly triple the yield per hectare. So what about all these gains, which are still of sleeping or inherent, but not exploited within the insect? Exploited is the wrong word, really. Unlocked. That's the word. That's the word, right. Unlocking genetic potential. That's what it's all about. So, yeah, no, I think that's, I think insect breeding is really interesting. I, I'm a big nerd about bee breeding, like apiary type stuff. Okay, yeah. What's the type of things that you thought about or researched in developing your breeding methodology or thought process? So the, the way you can go is, yeah, so from a top up, top down is you can kind of just do what people do with breeding in terms of crossbreeding and you can kind of push in that direction. You can do natural, like an artificial selection approach. Uh, artificial selection approaches, there's a raindrop. And then, apart from that, though, there's other techniques which are used in, say, the agricultural industry. And those techniques can be adapted to insects. They don't really lend themselves that well, maybe, to bigger animals. So, yeah, what we're doing is basically an amalgamation of 
techniques adapted from the livestock industry and the plant breeding industry. So it's the best of both worlds. And the way I see insects really is a bit of like a, a hybrid crop. So again, can we create traits which um, make insects to be a really good protein source, but can we use techniques to create traits which make them a valuable feedstock of, say, chemicals, biological agents, and all of that using food waste or waste as, base, as an input, so you get to valorize it quite easily. So yes, chemical, biological feedstocks and protein sources, and then maybe even, there's so much, I, I do wonder about it, I, and can you have different kind of setups with different species for different industries? So that's the way it go. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I'd imagine that you could have some specialization like that, like have one bug for this type of thing, one bug for that type of thing. Yeah, exactly. And there are other species which haven't been really tapped into. I mean, there's a few commercially farmed species, but there's so much in the insects, uh, like just in the phylum. That's not the phylum. That's, I'm, I'm getting my classification wrong. So I, I've done biology a while back, but it's class arthropod. I think it's an order. I might be wrong. But anyhow, within insects, there's a lot of variety and you could do so much. I mean, there's lac insects, which are kind of for, uh, lac is a dye, I believe, or material. And then you've got the whole idea of social insects. You mentioned bees. And bees are really cool. And then there's termites and there's ants. And yeah, what else can you even do? Biological control. That's really well understood, though. And, but could you breed, for example, for new pollinators? That's another one. Could you create a new relationship? Uh, <laughs> are you using traditional breeding techniques or are you doing any of the genetic modification in a you know, the, the crazy stuff that some people can do nowadays. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not GM, it's non-GM. And this is a question which always comes up with investors. It's, it's a non-regulated, it's, it doesn't fall foul of regulatory rules, really, because you're just creating traits within the genome. So you are not, per se, you are not putting new things into the genome. And the same, it's, it's the same with, like, if you go with a CRISPR approach, uh, from what I understand, if you knock something out, in the genome you're not putting anything new in so it's not transgenic and it's the same and i think i was re- i was reading about this in the states you also get stuff like cisgenics which is can you put the same gene back into the same species so you're not you take a gene from a potato and put it into another potato that's not transgenic but what if you could put five copies of the same gene into that potato and then it changes its uh, overall nutritional profile or the way it's processed uh, that's quite interesting as well. So the approaches we're using are non-GM. We would look into tra- other approaches which allow us to modify traits as well. And then we'll amalgamate those with other breeding approaches as well. How long until you have something that people are going to be able to eat or, or consume or have a product viable? Are we So people with, with people eating it, it will be meat. So we're not working on the food first. We're working on feed. So uh, the idea would be make an insect which can be made into fish food. And this is what people are, uh, what companies are already doing. But with our traits, we'd be looking, I think the idea would be to over the next half year, we'll have traits and then we'll be working with farms to develop those traits further. Uh, so insect farms are, and then we'll be, so that's the way to market really. It's a business to business approach. And going forward with that, uh, you, uh, you would look at the food market later on down the line. And that, that, that then brings up different approaches. How do we work with that? Uh, well, that's, that's something which comes down the line, uh, how we work into those markets. Do you have people already coming on being like, hey, we want, we would love these types of traits or these types of things? Or are you working closely with people or are you kind of like looking at the literature and trying to make the best thing? Yes. Okay. So, so that's a, it's a customer driven approach. 
and we have reached out to farms, so we have those conversations, and that helps us better understand what they're looking for and where to take it. So, so we do do that. Yes. What type of things are they typically looking for? Like what type of traits and stuff? Well, it's, it's kind of things which, with this industry, it's heavily commoditized. So, so this is the the challenge in the feed industry. Is it's so commoditized. So, I was speaking to someone once, and he said contracts are lost on kind of like order of 10, 15 pounds a ton kind of thing. So anything which gives these guys an edge in terms of their production efficiencies or their overall yields uh, is a big win, especially given that this is, has to displace, uh, insect protein has to displace existing market incumbents like fish meal and soy. And you can't, since it's commoditized, you can't really just do that from a sustainability point of view. You need to be able to compete on a price, price point. So anything which gives the insect farmers increased revenues in a way or reduced operational costs is is a win. What what was the first thing you wanted to do? Salmon, was it? Salmon. So, so the idea is make insects for... So farms are focused on making insects for aquaculture. So insect protein for aquaculture. And that's mainly coming out of the... US has put regulation in place to allow it or approved it. Canada has too. I think so, one of those countries has done chicken as well. Can't remember specifics. And the EU last year came out and said, right, you can feed seven insect species to fish. So that's a big one as well. So aquaculture is all opened up. So a lot of these companies are targeting the fish market. I think people, UK base, I mean, we've got a lot of salmon, so I think that would be one to go for. And then pre- presumably other companies in regional areas are maybe targeting different feeds. Or, yeah, I think you'd, you'd have a regional kind of approach. Or you just say, look, we've got insect protein, and then they work into integrating it. The thing is, you've got so many different formulations of fish food as well. Is it possible to give the bugs the type of qualities that'll give salmon their pinkness? So this is astaxanthin, the pink stuff. I don't think bugs have astaxanthin in them, so you'd have to breed for or create some method of putting astaxanthin in. Astaxanthin actually accumulates from, I think this is basically krill. So that's the way they get it normally, is they extract it out of prawn shell. And this is a costly compound to make. And the idea there is you either get a bug to make it or you, you feed the bug and hopefully the bar accumulates it. And there's been some work done with black soldier fly on this with can you feed black soldier fly salmon waste, uh, so salmon trimmings, and will they accumulate stuff like omega-3 so you can have an omega-3 rich insect protein. So maybe there's ways to doing that with astaxanthin, but it's, it's, nothing's happened yet. With astaxanthin also, an interesting one which came out, I think, is another company... I think that's state-based. It's a more of a symbio approach, but they've been making fungus, which makes a astaxanthin, and you can literally feed the stuff to the fish. Or that's the idea, at least. That's Thank fascinating. Something some would be considered, or, or thoughtful of maybe in the future, is like another thing you can do. There's just so much that you can do, because it's like a burgeoning thing, which is why you wanted to get into it. I just always think, like, oh, what about this? What about this? <laughs> but I'm sure you, you do that all the time. You're just like, oh, what if I could, yeah. There's always a few projects in the pipeline. <laughs> so what can we do next? It's, it's a case of sometimes five steps ahead of myself, and then you have to kind of rear back and say, let's work on this one first, and then we'll kind of move, move in a bit. When you do plot things out, do you have detailed three-month plan, a somewhat detailed six-month plan, and then two-year block or like how do you how do you like manage everything we we kind of really sit down and work out what we're doing week by week month by month kind of thing and we we have targets which we hit so we know where we're going and then longer term at the moment i'm really focused on this next bit because i know this bit's going to be the key bit and then longer term we've got a 
we've got a, a direction we're going in and we've got a direction in terms of the species we're working with already. And we'll work on that and then kind of branches out further down the line. I'd like to think of it at, at the end we're kind of like world dominating company. That's the kind of dream. Yeah. Do you have any advisors on your team that have kind of done similar things to help coach you mm-hmm. through to the to that level, like get you there? Yeah, we've got a great team of we've got a great team of advisors. Like that's I think that definitely is one of the things which really has taken us up a le- taken us up a level is having a great advisory board and people who are willing to chip in with their experience and kind of like go the extra mile that makes such a difference. And they're really, really great guys. It's basically, and they span the range of different bits. So it really gives us a feel for different approaches. So we've got people from, I mean, from insect farming to plant breeding. And it's it's all different bits. And it really, really comes together nicely. This is one of those things that I've been putting it, like thinking a lot of as I interview people, that there's this, in the biotech space, there's this gray hair fallacy. Maybe you're aware of it where... And it, it seems like a very key way to overcome it is to get these advisors on your team and be like, hey, we got the we got the drive and these people are here when these situations that you know that, that you're concerned, oh, we don't have the experience for it. Well, here's the people with the experience to be there to pitch in at those moments. So it kind of like, like it, it hits that argument on the head and demolishes it. Or at least I would believe it would, how else you would overcome that. But it seems like a very effective way to stack the deck in your favor, you know, with investors and when those experiences do come up. Um, So how do you find people like that? Like, where do you go? I don't think we've met any of them in in full-blown person. But it's usually a case of reaching out to the people who've written work which really resonates with us and what we're doing. And it's like, right, this is the expert in the field. And you just reach out and have a chat and you see how it goes. And then you take it from there. So that's kind of how how most of them have happened. And it is it is that kind of thing. Sometimes you really come across one person and you're like, oh gosh, this would be amazing to just have a chat with these guys. And it's it's really fun. And it builds out. So you're effectively you're building a relationship. And with all of it actually in the startup world it seems is it is about building key relationships with with your advisors, with your investors, with your customers. Do you like incentivize them with like equity or advisor shares or something, or do they just like what you're doing? and contribute or like i imagine maybe it's like a combination of the two it's a bit of both yeah yeah it's mainly a bit of both we see how it goes and yeah it's that kind of conversation it's it it grows and i think yeah as we as we progress uh we'll we'll have things uh things formalize a bit then as the company grows which is a funny one to think that comes further down the line it seems like you have a good thought process on it did you did dsv (laughs) like kind of train you on this or was it Something you evolved naturally yourself. I think I think I think you pick up quite a bit from DSV, and that's been great. So it it does help you. You're given kind of like a general gist of where to go, and then you kind of build it out a bit as you go along. I mean, the big one is you're told you need to build a company which is massive in the next seven years, and the kind of is that like set the bar high, and um, that's pretty cool. Where do you go? And that's that's kind of like a bit. I think it was a bit mind blowing at first when I saw I was just saying that one mark so that's uh, the other DSB there he's like yeah you need to be building a company which turns over hundreds of millions in five seven years time like uh, I, I, I kind of froze a bit and I kind of like you get into that group what was your first answer when he was like hey you're gonna have to build a company that does 100 million <laughs> like what was your when you finally could formulate a cogent response what, what was it I was like okay let's go for it and then you kind of start uh, you start thinking in that picture, like, this isn't big enough, or this isn't, uh, you know, it's that kind of thing. 
and you're like, how how do you fit it into that picture, and how do you build it? And it means, yeah, it, cha- it definitely changes the mindset. So I think that's what DSGs really helps with, is mindset and just thinking big. And I think there's always that thing where your thought process can kind of pull you to thinking slightly small, especially when things get tight or resources aren't at hand. But actually, it's such a connected place nowadays, you can actually find and build partnerships anywhere, or that kind of thing. So it makes it, I think... It's not as, I think people should resist the kind of scaling down way. You kind of need to keep scaling up. And as you build momentum, actually, you get more of that. And you kind of keep thinking bigger. So it's kind of, think big, go for a step ahead of you, challenging yourself. So that's what, I think that's what it is at heart. But are you aware of the Tesla Roadsters? The, the... Yeah. Okay, so... Cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... He made like an expensive car and sold it to a, a limited amount of people and used that to make the least, like uh, a more cheaper version and then less cheaper version of it. Do you, mm-hmm. have you ever, is there anything like that comparable to what you're working on where you find one that has a, a more significant margin? Yeah. Yeah. I think there could be ways to that and there could be, yeah, you could have different levels of gene stock and this is what the animal farming industry does. This is, a whole, this is such an interesting thing actually that, People put a price on traits from cars, EBVs, so breeding, estimated breeding values, I believe, or economic breeding values. But the idea is there is a price on, say, how wide the cow's hips are, how much milk it produces, and you can actually price a perf- put a performance on it and then put a price on that performance. And there's whole catalogs of these, and you can kind of flick through and say, right, I'm going to take this breed, and then that trait is so, such and such heritable and I'm going to cross it with this breed, and I'm going to get this overall. So it's a bit like cow building. And yeah, I th- I'd i love to see that for the insect industry. So to be able to pull out a catalog, same as you do with plants, you've got seed traits. These seeds do this, these seeds are more hardy. These seeds have a peppery flavor when they grow into this plant. And I'd love to have that for insects. Can you open a book which says, Black Soldier Fly Strain 1 grows faster, Black Soldier Fly Strain 2 lays more eggs. Uh, Black Soldier Fly Strain 3 does a bit of everything. It doesn't perform as well. It's And I think this kind of comes off from being, as a kid, I, well, I'm Maltese, so we, in Malta, people might not be partial to this, but we do eat rabbits. So it's not uncommon to grow your own rabbits at home. And I had a rabbit, a rabbit rearing operation. That's quite fun with my dad. You kind of pick the best breeds for meat. So, and there are breeds for meat. It's a, a utility breed. That's what it's for. It's kind of, and the same with chickens. You've got chickens which may lay more eggs. So if you breed a New Zealand rabbit with Canadian rabbit, I think that's just Canadian or California. No, it's California. You get a really nice meaty rabbit. And then there's the Flemish giant, which is just really big boned. Again, it depends how you cross them. But it's that kind of thing. Can you have those breeds but for insects? That's interesting. I, man, we're, we're talking about, we, we, there's so many things so far where I'm just thinking, I'm going to think about that a lot later when I go on my run. Because <laughs> if it doesn't exist, I could totally see the value of it. Yeah, uh, it's... Uh, and it's it's just that kind of thing, right? We haven't really answered the question, what does an insect, an industrial insect look like? It's We, we haven't really tackled that question. So, so that's what we're doing. Why did people make the catalog in the first place? Did they just, were like the people who did all the research on this make the catalog to make money to fund the research or? Uh, okay, so why did you build out the catalog for, if, if you're a breeding company? Well, I, I presumably, and this is where I'd really like to need to knuckle down a bit more and speak to breeding companies a bit further, because it is that kind of thing of the breeders can pick out the traits which the farmers want, and then they put the workout 
with the farmers how much value that is, presumably. And that's how those catalogs got built out. It's, 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 a sales, it's a sales thing. But the breeders don't exist without the farmers either, and the farmers don't exist without the breeders. You get me? Like, it's a bit of like both. And at the moment with the insect farming industry, it's actually a bit of everyone wants to do the full farming, full wheel. Everyone wants to do everything. But this sector will diversify and there will be people special, companies specializing in, say, breeding. And there will be companies specializing in post-processing of insects. And there will be companies specializing in the farming of insects. And at the moment, that's not happening. So we're kind of bringing in a bit, a bit of that as well. As you build to like that hundred million, you know, production <laughs> yeah, okay. stuff, uh, do you see do you see the value in having what is it a horizontal? A horizontal? Okay, so the horizontally integrate, so like yeah. the market, or the vertically integrate. Yes, there you go. So, so vertical integration, great. Again, you kind of have to build out the whole wheel. Horizontal integration. I'd like to see a horizontally integrated insect market actually. And that's the, the, the worry is, will one or two key players just try and force everyone out and vertically integrate? And then it's just going to maybe cause the market to shrink again eventually, or will this market actually just disappear as it gets bought out by bigger uh, corporates? So that's, that's the thought process there. Vertical integration into new industries, that'd be great. Or it'll be interesting to try out. Yeah, I'm thinking how it worked out in the United States with most things. I think that, that for agriculture, there's a lot of vertical integration. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, the classical example is Monsanto, right? Uh, yeah, those great people. <laughs> yeah. People love them. Yeah. They love yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, I've got the whole, I think it's because we've got the setup in the U.S. That's, that's the U.S. legal system, which lends itself quite well to like Monsanto. We don't like monopolies, but we also like monopolies. We like the benefits <laughs> yeah. of monopolies, we don't like the negatives of the monopolies. So. Yeah, there's... There- yeah, this is the, the Peter Thiel, right? Um, zero to one. He goes on about monopolies a bit. How you want to be a monopoly, but, but people, yeah, exactly. It's like people don't like monopolies per se, and the monopolies play themselves down. We're not really a monopoly. Yeah, this is true. Well, that's, well, that's why in the, in the 90s, that's why Bill Gates bailed out Apple when Steve Jobs came back. Because Steve Jobs was like, if I go away, if Apple goes away, you have no competition. Guess what happens to you? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Here's money. Here's here's some money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, which is, which is a little fantastic that you can kind of like punch a, uh, the big guy in the face and be like, you got to have competition. You don't want us to go yeah. away. <laughs> what what type of competition are things that are going to be roadblocks for you? Competition. There is a lot. There is in-house work being done. And that's where farms are trying to create their own better breeds of insects. They're doing it using the means available to them at the moment. I think where we stand out is that what we're doing is different in terms of a tech and the way we're using two approaches to create these traits and the way they marry together as well. And I think that gives us our edge. It's also what's different is that we are looking to collaborate with other farms and have them test our strains and traits within their farms so that they can see the benefit. And the way we see this going in the future is that this builds out into an industry where there's many farms in different regions and all contributing to the big picture of providing an alternative protein source. So we are, we, we're, we're seeing it as a horizontally integrated market. You want to go horizontal in the integration. So what would be the argument for that over vertical? Like you, Vertical, you just, I mean, I guess you'd have more human costs. So, so with, with, with the way we're doing it, we, we, we see it as enabling a whole sector. Mm-hmm. And there's more than one insect farm already. 
and we'd like to see it go that way in terms of our message going for world dominating oh, insect okay. farm. Yeah. Why not have regional ones? More players in the industry, less likely that one goes bust, everything fails. Mm-hmm. It is an emerging industry after all, so with the way we see it is we can enable as many as possible and really get it taking off. And I think this has been done as well with kind of hydroponic, aeroponic tech, where, was it grow farms? I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, the idea of enabling farmers rather than being like, we're going to farm as well. If you're creating the tech or the software for it, why not enable as many as possible? Especially, Yeah, I see your point that, like, especially with the early stage innovation, you need people to go wide and deep. And if you kind of like get all the patents and sit on them, you're not going to get... You're not going to go too far, which is basically what a monopoly would do. Like, you get to a certain point and you kind of stop. Competition is pretty effective. Yeah, it's kind of... If you go vertical integration and you monopolize a bit, you kind of stifle the market. And it can actually shrink a bit on you once that's happened. You re- you referenced Peter Thiel's book. Are there any other books that you read and that you'd recommend? So, I mean, I haven't read many startup ones recently. I'm reading Getting Things Done by Alan. Dan Allen, I believe. It's just like the GTD book. And then Soul the Soul of a New Machine. And I think that really captures startup world. But it's in a big corporate, so that's really nice. It's like a little modular startup in a company. And that's a, a non fiction which won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, in the eighties for and it's about a team of engineers building a computer in around eighteen months, which is pretty fast and it's it's they're building out the tech and the hardware from scratch and are kind of like locked off from the rest of the company and they just spend this is america as well so i wonder if something like stuff like this happens in america maybe more 80 hour weeks they're not paid overtime they're just doing it for the love of it 18 months later they emerged with this massive thing which really takes the company up the, the company was data general it was it was one of i think it was kind of like a computer pushing the edge of tech for them they were slightly behind because the competitors had pushed one out already but it, it was definitely that, that definitely was a good read it was a kind of shows how you do it, kind of, even the approach they took, they hired in fresh graduates who didn't know the limits and paired them up with industry of, like, more veterans in the industry. And they kind of had this, they just let them run. And they didn't tell them, this takes a year. And people were doing stuff in three months instead. And the idea of a sign-up, where you get people to kind of know that they are, that they commit and that they're in it. So that, that kind of thing as well. So sign-up. No, the hiring and just that culture. How you, how do you go about building that kind of culture where people will go the mile and have a that kind of team spread the corpse? That's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately as well. I'm I've been trying to pull from Napoleon, uh, a buyer fan Napoleon, because he he talks about creating the Spirit de corpse. I I don't know French, but it's like Spirit of the Corp, and uh, it's, it's 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 exactly like work work culture. Like how do you define that? And that's basically one of the reasons why he was so prominent is his ability to do that and get people to work together in the military front. You know, on a civilian front, he didn't do too. Yeah, he did an alright job, but like creating that world culture, that that engine of change is is something I, I think about a lot. And I imagine you're gonna have to too if you're gonna if you're gonna do a hundred million. Yeah, it's it's this one. It's it's an interesting one actually with that. Like looking from military civilian perspective, kind of. Is military more likely because we've got these situations, which uh, I'm speculating here, so I might be very wrong, but the idea of you create stronger ties in intense situations, it doesn't need to be military, but are you more likely to create stronger ties and build camaraderie through intense situations? I think that's a yes. Um, I think that's one of those things that's like when you want to be friends with someone, don't get a coffee 
or get dinner or lunch, you know, whatever, those like common to, you know, when they're first starting, but like go for a hike, go do something that's kind of sucks or something that requires energy. And you'll like that person more by the end of it because you shared in that experience together. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of, have you ever heard of the, what are they called? The fun levels, I think. Level, uh, type, the fun types. It's, it's kind of used in climbing and mountaineering, but there's type one fun, type two fun, and type three fun. And type one fun is when it's just bliss, you know, it's really, really good. Uh, and you just get in the moment. It's, it's that kind of thing which is a bit only then and then it kind of fades off. And then type two fun is the stuff which isn't as fun when you're doing it, but afterwards feels like fun or you kind of like, you think, yeah, it was pretty good, actually, even though I was, like, really creeped out or freaked out by what I was doing then. And then the type 3 fun is the fun, which is never really fun at all. That's kind of like when you're uh, climbing a mountain in pitch black and the weather is really bad and you know you're, you're risking it really hard. In theory, I think the idea is that you take, if you get really good at it, uh, you can turn type 3 fun into type 2 fun and then type 2 fun into type 1 eventually. So it's a bit like Zen. Well, yeah, I quite I quite like that idea of type two fun, where, as you were saying, kind of like intense energy expenditure, and then afterwards, when you look back at it, you see what you've achieved. No, that's interesting. Do you do you rock climbing yourself? No, I don't. I haven't really climbed. I used to do long distance cycling, ultra distance. Yeah, so Odax, and that was my type two fun, probably. Uh, and I think cycling's got that in. Well, it's got. It depends on your schools of thought. Some people say cake is great. Uh, some people think it's all about uh, man with the hammer. Um, yeah have to put it all out and suffer and i think i kind of sat in between with going with ultra distance or long distance is kind of you you have to pace yourself and you know you're in for a long haul and you you stick with it even when it really sucks and that usually gets better as well so that's what i used to do so i did paris brest paris i did a really long bike ride so that's 1200 kilometers in france in around four days uh 90 hours actually yeah, it's, it's a good ride. <laughs> uh, happens every four years. It's I think I still have quite a lot of flashbacks from it a year down the line. And then the other one was in Scotland, which was an unsupported bike ride. There was one control halfway in the Highlands, and that's even more like uh, brutal. And it was also 1,200 kilometers. I kind of timed that slightly on that, so I lost by four hours or so. But yeah, cycling up Glencoe at one in the morning... And then having to go down Glencoe as well at two in the morning, kind of like, that's, that, it's that kind of thing, you know? Hard to describe. Slept in a church. The guy got hit by a sheep. But yeah, it's that kind of, again, and I think, again, it kind of builds out when you're riding with people in those conditions, or you know you're doing this together. Again, it's kind of got that, you build up that camaraderie. We have that thing in common with people, even though you don't know them, you're, you know you're all on the same journey, and that's quite nice as well. So you don't do it anymore? Yeah, London, the problem is tiny rooms sometimes, so I kind of left the bikes back in Bristol. So we talked about how you built your team, what you're designing. Are there things that you, are there things that you're missing? Like, you look at all the pieces as you build this roadmap to making this 100 million really big impact thing. Are there things that you still haven't incorporated into your team or still concerns that are still haven't been addressed yet? I get you. Okay, so... Yeah, there are bits, and it's it's kind of, can you fill them through, say, team or advisory role? And I think the key bits are having people backing us, so that's one. And the other ones are bringing in a bit more expertise in for building out certain directions of the company. And again, maybe, you know, we talked about the gray hair fallacy a bit, but having those, yeah, people like that who've been there and done that, that really makes a difference as well. So it's, it's always good to hook up with those kind of people. So that's where I think, yeah, there are bits. There will always be bits. And it's 
it's kind of the way the startup is described as you you, te- you stick more tape onto it and it grows, and then you stick more tape on when it needs more tape and you counter the growing pains. So so yeah, what else are we working on? And and there is that kind of you can build out collaborations a lot. We we really believe in kind of like collaborations and having open relay working with companies to to build things out as well. So that's one way of doing it. If you can't have it in house, can you collaborate and bring it in? What are some good ways for people to follow along and kind of be a part of the journey? Like I don't know, do you have like a newsletter or something, or it's like a good way? Uh, for- okay, newsletters. I I need to work out the the full blown impact of GDPR, but no, we don't have a newsletter yet. If people want to follow, uh, I think the best way would literally be drop to drop us an email, and then we keep them in the loop. And we are we are working towards that. The website's functional, and there is a website which tells you a bit more about what we're doing as well. But yeah, if if people always, we're always open to conversation, and if people want to drop us a line, just send an email through, and we'll get back to you. Yeah, and there and the website is betabugs.uk. B E T A bugs.uk. For the people who are listening, yeah. For the people who listen and don't read the show notes. <laughs> yeah, and if you want to, I mean, <laughs> and if they want to email in, it's, I mean, they can email me or info. So it's info at betabugs.uk or thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, at betabugs.uk. Or find me on LinkedIn or this kind of thing. There, there are ways and means. I'm sure people can find me. Liam Neeson style. We have the skills and the, and the requirements. We'll find <laughs> you. And, then, and, and they will be in the in the show notes, so they'll be there as well. Who are the type of people you're looking to uh, connect with or get in contact with or partner with or anything like that? Okay, so after so we've been looking a bit at where Betabug sits, and it definitely falls within the agbatic space. So... It'd be great to speak to entrepreneurs working in that sector and hear how they've been building it out from their side, especially if they're in the U.S. and the U.S. ecosystem. And uh, likewise with investors or anyone involved in that space, even big corporates interested in insect farming as well. So so that's what we're thinking. And that's where it gets exciting, exactly, especially when you see Agbatech, where there's a lot of, there's still a bit of gray area on the gene edits, uh, but it's a very interesting field. You've got people making hornless cows. There's a new one coming through, which is pigs which don't need to be castrated anymore, and and all this kind of stuff. So that's very exciting, and it's both in the plant industry and the animal industry, and insects slots right in nicely, especially because of its relevance as a feed. So anyone anyone working in that space and the wider synthetic biology space as well, that's really cool to talk to as well. All right, well, I'll try and keep my eye out for people like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, what really kind of resonates with what's going on as well with this is Ag Funder, for example, because that's just a great portal to kind of keep an eye on what's happening in the ag industry. And and then there's it's really funny, but it is true. There is like, I mean, there's the the the, the feed industry websites and stuff, and they they kind of keep tabs on what's going on within like from a startup perspective or, or bigger companies as well. They're all. And it is interesting with bigger companies setting up shop in this because stuff like Entrexon buying out Enviroflights, that's a black soldier fly farm in the States, and then setting up a joint venture with feed producer, I think it's Darling, in the States as well. And that's quite exciting because it means there are big companies looking at this space as well. So it's not it's not just a fad, and it is going places. That's what's really exciting about it for me as well. I'd like basically it would be great to see this as, you know, in 10, 10 20 years' time, this will be the thing that people are eating. Like in Blade Runner, right? Blade Runner 2049. I hope we'll do it a bit earlier. Well, I mean, that's kind of a bleak world. Yeah, hopefully not that bleak. But I'd like to be able to, you know, you go to the uh, supermarket and alongside your frozen fish, frozen prawns, you can pull out a bag of crickets. 
I believe. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. I think we're yep. close to that. Especially if you're in China, you're already there. So it's just got to yeah, expand out. Yeah, Yeah. Quick question. What do you fear most? Well, waking up one day and finding all the bugs have died. That's <laughs> dreams. Like, what, what's going on with the bugs, George? Mm. Bernard, what's happened? And it'll be like, ah, shit, the bugs are dead. <laughs> that's usually, that's usually, I think that's kind of like one of the most irrational fears. But there's always, I mean, with, with when you build things, it's always a case of, can you build fast enough? Can you get there fast enough? And I think that's the one which really gets to me sometimes is, it's kind of a bit of a time, time element. How, how far can, it's, it's a bit like a time trial. How far can you go in the time given to you? That's what this is. So, so that's, I think that is one which is always on my mind is, have we got enough time? And I think that's one which kind of encompasses most startups. That's why we call it a burn rate, right? Uh, all these kinds, kinds of ideas that startups move fast. Are you moving fast enough? Then what is the worst thing that has ever happened and the most impressive thing that has ever happened in your startup journey? This is a hard one. I think there's been quite a, no. <laughs> I won't go <laughs> There's been loads of bad stuff. No, it's been really good actually. We've had a really good trip. Uh, I think, I think the tricky one is when you have to part ways with people. Uh, I think that's one. That one's definitely hard, and I've learned a lot from that. So that is one where basically my co-founder said, "I'm not. I'm going to go back to what I've been doing before," and he moved on. And kind of managing that whole thing because you put into this uh, period of rapid change, effectively. And we really had to sit down and work out what to do with that. And then I think there's, no, I think that was the worst one. There, 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 you'll always get one, I think one a month at least. Some people say there's always once a week where things will kill your startup. If I, if I could, real quick, before you talk about the impressive thing, because I think that's one of, something that people don't talk about a, a lot, where you have a founding team, but sometimes it doesn't work out for a variety of reasons. Like, do you have any thoughts on how to manage that or be aware of, like, that concern so that you build a good team or build a team that's going to be able to resonate through like have you learned anything about going through that experience i think it's really like it, it definitely is a case of you need to sit down right from the start and talk and have a bit quite a bit of talking i'm not talking even doing things but like really working out where you see this building out in the long term and having that long like seeing if you align both in the in the near and the long term and really being honest about it so, so that's something which is really important I think that's because if someone is not going to be happy later down the line, you can at least, it can be flagged then. And that kind of gives you education. And yeah, so that's mainly the one. I, I think that's the one thing I would definitely do this time around. Since I interrupted you, what, what's something that really impressed as in, like when you think about it, like kind of swells you with pride and makes you want to just hit it even harder the, ne- you know, the next time it's time to work? Maybe I'm a bit too hard on myself sometimes. I don't think about these. I think I'm, I'm really chuffed. I mean, we've, we've got everything going. We've, we've set, we've moved. We've got someone else joining on. And that's really good because we've been working with him online for a bit and actually seeing him in person. Yeah, that was good today. It's like, hey, Bernard, how's it going? And it could be like proper fist bump. And that was nice. The, the fact that you kind of see it coming bit by bit, but actually it's all come together. Now we've got, we're in a facility. We've all the work we've done before translates into this. Bernard can take that forwards, and and that's a really nice point. So that was good. It's kind of like a bit of a culmination. Uh, and I think it's always nice when you find out you've got a grant funding coming through or this kind of thing. You always get a bit edgy towards the time when you're going to get notified, but when it comes true, that's a great feeling as well. It's really, really good. You kind of it changes the way you feel as well about the company. But you know the company's got got more to it now. There's more fuel in the tank, and you can do more. 
and people are behind you as well. So that's really cool. And then having great advisors. So I think having great advisors is always a good win. When you when you get those people on board who are like, yeah, this is amazing. And you feel like you're working well with them. So that's nice. And it kind of builds throughout. That's actually like the constants which come through. I really like that as well. Is there? Uh, can you tell us something that you surprising that you've done as like in a biotech startup or just in life in general? Something surprising that you've done? Surprising that I've done in beta bugs or not even beyond beta bugs. In all life, what would surprise us? I've taken ice cream off a mountain. I don't know if Ben Nevis counts as a mountain, but I did take ice cream off it. It was quite fun. I wanted to eat ice cream at the top of a mountain. I bought ice cream at the base. Well, I don't know if Ben Nevis is a mountain. This is what I need to find out. But this is a big. It's a pretty big peak in the UK. It's in Scotland. And you can't, yeah, so I bought ice cream at the base and then took it up in a picnic cooler and hiked up all the way and had it at the top. It was slightly melty, but that was something I was really happy about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, that was always good. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes you savor it, you know, like whenever you have to like kind of yes. earn it, it tastes so, so much better. It's that kind of thing. That and I, yeah, as a kid, I used to take care of chickens and I built my own incubator. That was really fun. Key insight and experiences do you and the team have? that make it so that even if there was competition, that you destroy them? The know-how. I think it really boils down to the know-how. And I think that's what you can take away. No. And that's the process we're doing as well. I think that's what gives us our edge. Uh, last question for you then. If, you're, if your startup succeeds with these the next few goals, what other areas would you expand into or would, would you just love to get into as well? Going into the whole bioeconomy. That's where I see it at, building up. It's enabling, creating traits and breeds of insects for other industries not necessarily just the feed industry or the insects as feed industry can we make it for the insects as food industry can we make it can we make insects into a source of high value chemicals biologicals and everything pretty much everything else it's it kind of becomes a bit of a a new kind of crop that's where i'd see these insects going that was thomas from betabugs we learned about his startup company his journey how he climbed up a mountain and had ice cream on the top of it that's kind of eccentric i really enjoyed this conversation with thomas and i hope each and every one of you did as well if you would like to contact thomas check the show notes or go to my website where there'll be clear ways to find him if you want to ask more questions about what we talked about today or follow up you can also message me as well and i'll ask him for you thank you for joining us today with learning with lowell don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lowell was here facebook and on the website learningwithlowell.com Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you. (laughs) 